Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 6 through 23. It can be paid, found on the pages 235 and 236 in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, if you'll take a moment, open up to that scripture, please. It is custom here at Christ Community Church to stand for the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Jonathan had said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will go, not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And after that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp of the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that same time with the people of Israel. Now now while Saul was talking with the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up from them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all of the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard of the Philistines, they were fleeing. They too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. It is tradition. Well, please be seated. And uh, if you'll take a few moments to uh, pause and meditate over God's holy word. We are reconnecting with our sermon series out of 1 Samuel after a few weeks away over the holidays. And as we do, I thought it would be helpful to review, so we make sure if you haven't been here in a while, or maybe this is even your first time, you can try to capture what's going on here in chapter 
14. Uh, there are a lot of things happening in 1 Samuel, but probably the most significant shift that's taking place in 1 Samuel is a shift in leadership. Uh, 1 Samuel transitions from judges to kings. So judges are military generals. They sort of rose up at certain times in need of Israel's uh, life as early life as a nation. And uh, there was a cycle of them. You can read through that in the book of Judges, Gideon, Samson. Those are people who are judges. And Samuel is the last judge. And he anoints the first king who is Saul and then the king after him who is David. Now, if you were to go back to chapter 8, you would remember that the people, one reason this shift is taking place is the people had rejected God as their leader. They just got tired of the way God was operating, whether they couldn't see him or they didn't like his operational style, whatever the reason was, they preferred to be like all the other nations around them. And whenever the people of God prefer to be like all the other nations around them, that's usually a dangerous position, and that was a dangerous position for the Israelites. And so God sort of surprisingly decides, okay, I'm going to let them have what they want. Now, you never actually want that. You just decide, hey, this is what I want. And if God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you, that's probably like, no, I don't, I don't know, maybe not. But he decides, hey, I'm going to give them what they want, and I'm going to give them a king made in their image. So they just know, hey, this is what the kind of king you want. I'm going to give him to you, and his name is Saul. And what we know about Saul is he looked good on the outside, but he was weak on the inside. What we know about Saul is he was more interested in following Saul. Saul was for Saul rather than Saul was for God. And Saul was, driven, was a man driven by fear rather than faith. And those are all the characteristics of the people of God at that time. And so God has given them their leader. Now, tragically, we see all these characteristics play out in chapter 13. And you may remember that at the coronation of Saul, Samuel, who's now the prophet, he's telling Saul, Saul, here are some things that are going to happen to you, and then one day you're going to be in a really tight situation. The, the Philistines, who are the enemies, they're going to try to invade Israel. It's going to be an overwhelming situation, and you need to go down to Gilgal, and you need to wait seven days on me to come. And this is what's happening in chapter 13. He Saul goes down to Gilgal. The Philistines are coming into Israel. Now, we've got to remember, you've got to stop and just pull up the Gilgal slide. So if you can't remember Gilgal, Gilgal is an important place in the Bible. If you try to go back and think about the Israelites trapped in Egypt, they're set free miraculously by God's hand of providence with the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. They get out into the desert, they cross over, and they're just about ready to get into the promised land. And Moses is there, and Moses says, hey, we're going to take one person from every tribe, 12 men. We're, they're going to scout out the land. You remember this story? They scout out the land, and they're gone for uh, several days, and then they come back to give a report about the promised land. And 10 of the spies were driven by fear, and two, just two men were driven by faith, Joshua and Caleb. And they come back, and Joshua and Caleb say, well, it's just as the Lord described. I mean, we've got to move in. And Caleb says, let's go right now. 
But the voice of fear won out that day. And you know what that cost? 40 years. 40 years of wandering in the desert. Because these people decided to follow their fears rather than follow their faith. Well, 40 years goes by, and guess who's coming back to the, uh, the Jordan? Joshua and Caleb. They, they've, they're the only ones of the spies who've made it. And they cross over miraculously uh, across the Jordan into Israel. And what's the name of the town that they reach first? Gilgal. And at Gilgal, they set up this stone memorial, 12 stones. And they say, hey, we're going to put these stones together like an altar so that in, in t- as time goes by, people will say, we remember God. We remember how powerful he is. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the odds, we can trust God. And we want to make sure we remember never to give in to fear, but to go with faith. That's what this little stone, 12 stone altar is. So now, this is several hundred years later, guess where Saul is? He's at Gilgal. Everybody knows what that means. I'm here, I'm here to remember God is faithful, even, with the, even when the odds are overwhelming. And I don't want to give in to my fear, I want to give in to faith. That's what I'm trying to do. That's why he's at Gilgal. But when we read chapter 13, we realize that Paul, he gives in to his fear. And what we find out about this little event here is that the real test for Saul wasn't a fight against the Philistines. It was a fight against his fear. The real fight for you and I is not a, a circumstance. It's not your spouse. It's not your boss. It's not the culture. It's not politics. It's not your child. The real fight that you and I face every day is the fight inside. The fight against fear. The fight for faith. And Saul is in this fight and he loses this fight because Saul is for Saul. And so Saul decides to do what feels right rather than what he knows is right. Saul decides to do what feels right rather than what he knows is right. Now, this is very important because Saul hasn't forgotten about God. It's not like, forget you, God. No, he, he knows who God is. He's remembered God. It's just that God's word now sits behind Saul's fears. God's word now sits behind the current pressures Saul's in. So instead of having God out front, now we say, well, I know God, but he's got to sit here in the back seat. And, and, and if I've got fears, I've got to get away from them. If I've got desires, I've got to go towards them. And then whenever God's word can kind of sort of help out, then I reach back and get God's word. That's the way Saul was operating. That's the way a lot of people in the church still operate. They really believe in God. They come on Sunday mornings. They sing the songs. They raise their hands. But God's word sits just behind their fears. God's word sits just behind their current circumstances. And those things really drive their lives rather than God's word. Now look at chapter 13, verse 13, and we see the sad result. Samuel does show up uh, on the seventh day, and it says this, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You haven't kept the command of the Lord. See, you've, you've put God's word in the back. 
If he had, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. Instead, the Lord has sought, a man after, sought out a man after his own heart, which we find out is David. And he's going to be the prince. Verse 15. Very sad verse. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The way you're supposed to read that is God's word is leaving Saul. Saul's on his own. Saul's for Saul. We've still got the Philistine problem. It's not like they haven't magically gone away. But now Saul doesn't want to follow after God. So, so God's word effectively in Samuel gets up and walks off Saul's stage. I say, okay, Saul, you're for Saul. Have at it. Now, what we see here in chapter 14, setting the scene, there's two armies. There's the Philistines and the Israelites. They're on sort of two wide hillsides. And in the middle of, this, of these two wide hillsides is a very steep, rocky ravine. It's sort of a natural barrier between the two. And it's been cut out over time due to the spring rains. And so on one side, you have the Philistines, and on the other side, you have the Israelites. And on the Philistines, if we were to go back and look at chapter 13, what we would discover is they have 30,000 chariots. 30,000 chariots. Just think of the noise that that's going to create. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And then the writer says, troops like the sand on the seashore. So this is just a horde of of the enemy. You You can't even count them, it seems like. That's the Philistine side. On the Israel side, Israel side, we look over and they say, well, they have 600 men. Hmm. Verse 19 in chapter 13, it says, they have no blacksmith. They have no metal worker. The Philistines had not allowed metal to come into Israel. So they had a technological advantage. In fact, the only two people who have swords are Jonathan and Saul. So you've got 600 men, two guys with swords, and everybody else has got like a club. You have one of the 600 men was Ahijah. This is the priest. And notice with me in chapter, in chapter 14, verse 3, how carefully the writer connects, connects him to three different people. When you read this, you're supposed to, lights are supposed to go off. Here's, here's his family tree. His great-grandfather is Eli. Okay, Eli the priest, who was cut off from God because of his unfaithfulness. That's his great-grandfather. His grandfather is Phineas. Remember Phineas? Phineas and Hophni, the two sons of Eli who were wicked. And they were put to death in a battle. And then his uncle, his name is Ichabod. Now turn back with me because I think this is interesting to chapter 4, verse 19 when Ichabod was born. You remember the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen or maybe captured by, by the Philistines. And a report comes back to Israel where um, Phineas's wife is. Now the daughter-in-law and the wife of Phineas, verse 19, was pregnant. She's about to give birth. When she heard the news of the Ark of the Covenant had been captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, and her pains came upon her. And about that time, her, de- the, her death, 
the women attending to her said to her, don't be afraid for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed. So here's Saul. He's in a cave hiding. Most of his 600 men are in a cave hiding. The word he has from the priest is from somebody where the glory of God has departed. So when you're sitting in this situation, you, you just think this is hopeless. Saul, Saul's hiding. He's frozen in fear. He's, he's gone into a cave, and it's like he's gone into a cave thinking, if I just stay in the cave long enough, when I come back, maybe everybody will be gone. You ever done this in your life? Yes, you have. You, you have something that just seems so big and you just think, I just, it's, it's like the elephant, I can't eat it, it's just so big. If I just lock myself in, if I just cut myself off, if I hide in some way, either personally or emotionally, somehow days or weeks or years go by and then miraculously it's all done, that, that, that never works. But that's, boy, that's, you can understand why Saul would want to do this. Well, when you get to this place, in the text, if you were writing a movie, and this would be a great scene, if you got to this point, you would say, this looks hopeless, this looks impossible. And if you were the screenwriter, you would start this music right now. Yeah, right? We know this song. This is Mission Impossible. You get to this point and you think, okay, it's hopeless, but you know because you've been reading you know God's involved, that, that something can happen. That's good on the Mission Impossible music. <laughs> you know something can happen. You, even though you read it as hopeless, you've been reading through your Bible, you know God's not done. And even though it looks like he sort of walked off the stage, you know he's the main actor on the stage. And so we get here into chapter six, I mean, chapter 14, verse six and seven, and we see these key verses. Let's look at them together. Jonathan, this is Saul's son, says to a young man who's his armor bearer, this person who's, who fights beside and also with Jonathan, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Let's go to the, a, a little troop of the Philistines that are on the edge of this ravine. And it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. From verse 1, we know that Jonathan had to sneak out of the cave. He didn't tell his dad he was leaving to go check something out. He'd drag his armor bearer along with him. Now, why don't you think he told his dad? Hey, Dad, I'm going to take my armor bearer and I'm just going to stand on the edge of the ravine and just check things out. Why, why do you think he said that? I think if he tells his dad, he knows he might get stuck in the web of his dad's fear. I think he's concerned that if he gets there, his dad is a, a person who's driven by fear. He's the kind of person that when you come to him, all he can tell you is all the problems that he sees. Yeah, you know somebody like this? Okay, don't point like to the person next to you. But, but you come to the person and they only can see the negative things. They can only see problems. They, they never really can see God in it because they only just have their, their, their blinders on. They can only see sort of how they see things. 
And Jonathan knows he might waste his whole life stuck in a cave in his father's fear. You can get stuck in a cave of someone else's fear. I mean, you can get stuck in a cave of your own fear. But I've known people who are stuck in the cave of someone else's fear. Might be their spouse. Might be a significant other person in their life. Might be a, a mom or a dad. But, but when Saul's fear comes inside, it doesn't stay inside. It spills out. And it's like a web. It captures people. It captures a whole army. Captures the whole imagination of the whole country. And Jonathan knows it could capture him. So he decides to somehow sneak out of this cave and take his armor bearer with him. So the two men walk up to the edge of this rocky ravine. And Jonathan looks at his friend, verse 7, and says, "Let's, Let's go over to the other side. It may be, or in some of your translations, it might say, perhaps the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. And I absolutely love the courage and curiosity of Jonathan. This is one of my main points. I love the courage mixed with curiosity with Jonathan. He had the courage to trust God. He had the curiosity He just had a curiosity. Who knows what God might do in this situation? It may be, or perhaps God's going to bring a great great victory. Now, listen carefully to one of the commentators, uh, Dale Davis. He says this, many think that saying perhaps cuts the nerve of faith. You hear that? If you walk into a situation and say, well, perhaps, or it may be, when, when, you're, when you're sort of saying, I'm not sure, you're cutting the nerve of faith. They say, if faith is faith, you must always be certain, dogmatic, and absolutely positive. Faith, however, faith, however, must not be confused with arrogance. Jonathan's perhaps is part of his faith. Here's his key understanding. He confesses, Jonathan confesses the power of God, yet retains the freedom of God. Real faith does not dictate to God as if the Lord is its errand boy. Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance and knows it has not read the transcript of the divine decrees for most situations. Do you hear that? This is real faith. This is real courage to go out and say, I'm willing to get involved. I'm willing to sort of take this thing head on and I'm hoping that God's going to be involved. But you know what? I don't know. I'm not positive. God, God has all kinds of things in plan that I can't possibly see. So I'm just going to back off from being prideful or arrogant and demanding that God do something because I'm doing something. And I'm going to say, well, perhaps, perhaps God is going to do something. I would say Jonathan's doctrine isn't name it and claim it. It's courage and curiosity, which is what I'd like your doctrine to be. Jonathan somehow has coupled together great faith and great humility. He's willing to come out of the cave. He's willing to put his life on the line. But he's humble enough to know that that's not forcing God's hand. And I've met some Christians who would benefit from this kind of humility. They say things as if they're saying them makes God own them. 
And maybe they just need to work a few more perhapses into their conversation. I hope I'm going in this direction. I feel God is leading me in this direction. I should step forward and not hide in a cave. And I don't know what God is going to do. I hope he's going to do something, but, but it's perhaps. I don't, I'm not positive. I'm not, God, I love what Carl said. I'm, I'm taking a vacation from being God. I just don't have to know everything. I don't have to control everything. I can take a vacation. I'm going to still have to exercise some courage. I'm going to still have to exercise faith. But I don't know how God's going to work out in this situation. It may not look very good to me. It certainly doesn't look very good here. But who knows how God might work. Jonathan just doesn't put God in a box already. So Jonathan, he's standing beside his armor bearer who has a pretty invested interest in what Jonathan's going to do. Because he's not going to say, well, here's a sword, go at it. See on the other side. I mean, he's going to have to walk alongside of him. And so the armor bearer looks at Jonathan, verse 7, such a great verse. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. You want to kiss this guy. I mean, when he says it, you're just like, yes. I mean, who doesn't want somebody like this in their life? Somebody who's just saying, yes, I, I am, I, my heart is your heart. My soul is your soul. I am going to be standing right beside. I mean, if we go down, we both go down. If, we, if there's a win, we both win. I'm, I'm with you heart and soul. I can't even imagine the fuel that gave Jonathan. I mean, he had to be sitting there saying, I feel, I think, I'm not sure. And, and he's praying, but he doesn't hear God say anything audible. And he turns to his friend, what do you think? Now, I mean, if I were his friend, I'd be like, well, I mean, let's do some calculations here. It's two of us, and there's 40,000 or some number over there. It's not looking good, but let's, let's, let's recon. Re- I mean, I, w- I don't know how I would have reacted, but I love this guy's reaction. Jonathan, then, he lays out this game plan. We're going to walk down one side. We're going to walk up. It's very rocky. One of the, one of the side, they have names, I think it's in verse 4, for the sides of the ravine. One of them is called Slippery, and the other one's called Thorny. So we've got to go down Slippery Slide, and as we're coming up Thorny Slide, we're going to somehow stand out on a rock and get this little garrison that's up at the top of the hill. We're going to get their attention. And when they see the two of us, if they say, hey, climb on up here, we'll show you a thing or two, then we know. What would you know? (laughs) Turn around and run. That's what I would say. That's what I know. But they say, no, if they say, come on up, we know the Lord is for us. If they start coming down, I mean, we're toast. Right? So they, 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 get, they get up and they, they, they wave their hands or whatever they do. And the garrison says, hey, come on up. Come on up. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews, they're coming out of the holes. Because they, they've been in fear. They've been living in these caves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and the armor bearer. Come on up to us. We'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Incredible. Jonathan climbs up with the armor bearer. 
There's some small garrison right here. They kill 20 of them. Maybe that's the whole garrison. And then in verse 15, and there, a great panic then comes out of the camp. They're, they might be thinking, oh my gosh, these people have strategically hid themselves in the hill and they're all coming out of the hills for us. And then they start fighting and they're actually killing each other. The garrison, even the raiders, these are sort of like the army rangers, they trembled. And what does it say? How did God join in the battle? The earth quaked. Now, I know it's been some time, but what is this supposed to remind you of? Another battle, back in verse 7, that looked just as hopeless. And how did God join in? He thundered. Remember that? So this is God. This is Jonathan, the armor bearer, and God. Jonathan's got a sword. The armor bearer's probably got a shield like, oh, my gosh. And we got God doing a little earthquake. So it's, we're feeling good now. The the Philistines are in a panic. And then news comes back to the base camp. There's some watchmen that are looking across the hill, and they notice that this 30,000-plus number of Philistine soldiers, they look like a a fire anthill that's been kicked over. uh, They're all scrambling around, and they say, what in the world's happening? They quickly discover Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. And then in verse 18 and 19, Saul calls for a priest in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we're going to come back to that for a minute. But let's just try to go back and and think for a moment. Jonathan and one other guy are standing at the edge of a riverbed. And they're saying, God can do something. What's that supposed to remind you of? Joshua and Caleb. See, just two faithful men. That's all it takes. So they're the new Joshua and Caleb. A lot of times I talk about this core, these chords that get played. This is three, 400 years later. We've got a new Joshua and Caleb. We've got another riverbed. They're, they're the two that are saying they're faithful. And meanwhile, Saul's locked up in fear. He's frozen back in his cave. And he decides, well, I'm going to call my priest, the guy who doesn't know anything about the glory of God, and find out what God is doing, which isn't a good plan. There's a lot of commentary here, and I won't uh, bother you with it, about exactly what Saul and this priest are trying to do. But what I, whatever's happening, I think it's safe to say that Paul's on the wrong side, Saul's on the wrong side of what God is doing. In chapter 13, he's moving forward when he should have waited. In chapter 14, he's waiting when he should have been moving forward. I mean, God's already at work. He's fighting alongside Jonathan, and Saul's stuck in a cave. And I would say whenever you detach yourself from God's word, you frequently find yourself on the wrong side of what God's doing. Why? Because you're on your own side. You're the side. Finally, because of the courage and curiosity of Jonathan and his armor bearer and a little earthquake by God, Saul's men join in verse 20, verse 21. Israelites who had actually gone over to the other side thinking they weren't going to win, so they're going to get on the, other, the winning side. They turn against the Philistines. Verse 22, other men who have been hiding in the cave, they come out. So where Saul's fear had washed over the people, now Jonathan's faith is washing over all the people. In verse 23 it ends, so the Lord saved Israel that day. The writer knows it really was the Lord's doing. I want to close here with just three 
Isn't that a great story? Three points of application. You, you can make many more here, but these are the ones that I've thought about this week. Number one, until Jesus' return, there's still many battles to fight, and God is still looking for partners. Until Jesus comes back, there's lots of battles to fight. And God's preferred method of fighting the battles is to get a partner. Now, we know God can do it on his own. We don't, get, we don't want to get mixed up thinking that he needs me. I'm his only hands and feet because we know that's not true. Because remember when the Ark of the Covenant got stolen? They put it into the, uh, the temple of Dagon. Remember what happened? Dagon, who tipped over and his head got cut off. And God got the ark all back by himself. He didn't need anybody's help. So it's just a way to say to Israel, Israel, I don't need you. But I want you. That's, that's, this is the incredible thing. I want to partner with you. That's the whole purpose of Adam and Eve. I'm, I'm forming a partnership. I want you to take control in some ways using the gifts that I've given you. I want to partner with you on this whole adventure. And that, there's so many stories in the Bible about this. Moses, Esther... Isaiah, who can forget Isaiah in the temple? I heard the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? Who's going to go for us? Isaiah didn't say, go for yourself. No, you see, he wants a partnership. Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So the eyes of the Lord are still ranging. They're ranging right now in this room. He's looking for a partner on something, some project, big or small. He prefers to join with you to get it done in 2019. And I'm wondering how many of you want to be that partner. Think about you standing at the edge of the ravine against 40,000 armed men. See, this is the kind of partnership you get in with God. He wants to make sure, you know, it's going to all be about him. It's not something simple. It's something big. So easy. It's so easy to live in a culture that you feel like is in chaos and then just lock yourself in your house and hope that when you come out, it all goes away. The partners, number two, the partners God's looking for are partners with courage and curiosity. I mean, Jonathan doesn't know the earth's going to quake. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He just, he says, Lord, if they say this, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that you and I'm going to go forward. Who knows what would have happened, but he has courage. He has curiosity. And my question is for you and for me, are you willing to advance into difficult situations, trusting God can save by many or by few? Are you moving forward with curiosity? Are you saying, I feel like this is the way to go. Perhaps God's going to do something. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I know he can. And my prayer this week, and it's going to be my ongoing prayer in 2019, is I'm praying that some of you in here are going to be Jonathan's in 2019. That just hearing this sermon as the first sermon of 2019, you're going to say, I felt like God was speaking to me. I need to be a person... Like Jonathan, he's a good example for us. He's got courage and curiosity. And I'm, 
I want, Jonathan, to fuel your imagination to say, who knows what God could do? Instead of going into a situation and say, well, this is what I can do, and I'm sure God's not going to do any more than this, and then that's it. You already sort of box them in and say, that's all that's going to happen. Well, that is all that's going to happen. And I'm just asking you, are you hearing the Lord say, yes, this is for you. Be a Jonathan. In in order for Christ Community Church to move forward in any way, whether that is out into the community or to deepen our roots here inside the community, it's going to take more Jonathans than we currently have. It's going to take some people who are going to get out of a cave of fear and be curious enough to say, I don't know what God could do with my neighbor, my boss, my family, the apartment complex next door, the the 300 apartments that are going to be built sometime in the next year over here. Who knows what God could do? But are you the kind of person who wants to partner with God and you have the courage to move forward and the curiosity to trust? Now, some of you might be saying, I don't hear the Lord's voice on that. Paul, I'm not a Jonathan. I mean, I know some Jonathans. I might be sitting next to a Jonathan. I'm just not one of those Jonathans. And what am I going to say? You probably know it already. Great. Be an armor bearer. Just stand next, find a Jonathan and say, I'm not Jonathan. But you know what? I think you are. You've got some fire. You've got some energy to go somewhere. And I don't personally have that, but I have personal energy to give to you to fuel your forward movement. So everyone here gets a challenge. Everyone here can either be a Jonathan or an armor bearer. And that person is equally important as Jonathan is. So find somebody who's moving in some direction and just say, I want to try to add fuel to your fire. I want to be encouraged. I'm I'm willing to stand even in difficult places and fight alongside of you. A final thought on this passage On Thursday, I leave to go to India. Uh, We support a ministry here called Alpha, and there's a pastor's conference. And Benny, the person who runs the organization, called me several months ago and said, Paul, these, these are our top 100 pastors. These are the guys who are putting their lives on the line. Many of them have been hurt for their faith. And we get together only occasionally because there's some danger in all of us getting together in some place. And we want you to come and speak to these guys. So, so next week after next, I get to spend five days with real Jonathans. Real, live Jonathans. And guess what I'm going to be for a week? An armor bearer. I mean, I'm not, when I leave, I'm not going to be in any, any danger. They're not going to hurt the American guy over there. They're going to wait until he leaves and then find out who are these guys, where they live, what's going on with them. And so just for a week, I get to stand alongside and be an armor bearer. And my prayer is that you would pray for me, but pray for these guys who are wandering out into difficult places in India, probably know this, not a very Christian country, 3% out of 1.4 billion people. What does that feel like? 
That feels like two guys against 40,000 Philistines. And that's why I have hope. I'm not going, I'm going to preach this message in about two weeks to these guys and say, you're, you're those people. Don't be afraid just because it's just two people against a whole city of hundreds or millions of Hindus who are lost. Move forward, have courage, trust God. Perhaps he can do something that you couldn't possibly do. That's not just a charge for people who live in India. It's people who are sitting in these seats. You have the same charge. What's going to fuel us going forward? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because even if you go forward and you think God's going to help you, and he doesn't, and you die, guess what? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this is what gives you fuel to move into those difficult situations. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come here and we hear this great story, true story, about Jonathan, his armor bearer, Saul and his fear, courage and curiosity. It's not by accident that we've landed here this morning to hear this. And I pray you are doing the work internally in the lives here. Would you fuel your people with courage and curiosity, with faith as they come forward for communion? I pray in Jesus' name. On the night Jesus was betrayed, when everyone was going to leave, he didn't leave. And he said, I'm going I'm to go to the cross, and this is going to be my blood and my body for you. It's going to not just fuel your salvation, it's going to fuel your sanctification, that you might follow after me. And so we invite all those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior to come forward. And if you haven't, my, my hope and prayer is that you would consider that Consider that this week. Who have you put your faith in? Who have you put your trust in? The deacons will come and help and usher you out, and then we'll pray as we end the service.